Coming up on this week's show, author Victoria Lee joins us to talk about her series, Fever Wake. This is the Big Gay Fiction Podcast, the show for avid readers and passionate fans of gay romance fiction. Each week, we bring you exclusive author interviews, book recommendations, and explore the latest in gay pop culture. Welcome to episode 241 of the Big Gay Fiction Podcast. I'm Will from WillCanals.com, and with me as always is my co-host and husband, Mr. Jeff Adams. Hello, everybody. This episode of the podcast is brought to you in part by our remarkable community on Patreon. We'll have more information on how you can join the community in just a few moments, and at the end of the show, we'll have a sneak peek of what we have coming up for you next week. Welcome back, everybody. We hope you are doing well as we work our way through the month of May. Uh, we do want to remind you, in case you didn't catch the episode with Claire London last week, you should go back and listen to that, and that there is still time to read Romance in the Rough Diamond by Claire. It is our Big Gay Fiction Book Club pick for this month, and that episode where we do the deep dive discussion on it will be coming out on next Tuesday, May 26th. So, You've got about a week left to read that book, which you should really read. It's so funny and so perfect for these crazy times that we live in to have a little bit of fun hilarity. Yeah, definitely. And of course, coming up in just a couple of weeks, Pride Month is going to be kicking off. We mentioned last week and want to give the reminder that for members of our Patreon community, we'd like to send everybody Pride cards to celebrate the season. If you're a patron, all you have to do is private message us with your mailing address by Monday, May 25th, which means you've got a week left to do that as this episode drops. If you want to become a patron and get a Pride card, you can also sign up and learn everything at patreon.com slash biggayfictionpodcast. And speaking of Pride, we have a very special announcement. This year, for most of us, Pride is going to be a little bit different. As a response to the global pandemic, cities across the country have either postponed or canceled their annual Pride events. While we draw strength from the unity of gathering together every year during the month of June, it's important to remember that our strength is innate. The Pride that we have is something we carry with us no matter the time of year. That being said, it's a little sad that we won't be able to go to parades or dance with friends, check out Go-Go Boys, or buy overpriced rainbow t-shirts and tchotchkes. And trust me, no one loves those t-shirts and tchotchkes as much as me. Mm -hmm. So in the interest of spreading a little bit of feel-good rainbow joy, this year the Big Gay Fiction Podcast will be programming special bonus material throughout the month of June. In addition to our regular content, you can expect special mini-episodes featuring some of the most popular authors of gay romance fiction. There will also be narrators and other special guests. It'll be like a Pride-themed literary festival, but digital, and available to listen whenever is most convenient for you. All of our regular content is going to appear in your regular podcast feed, just as it normally would, but starting on June 3rd, you can expect to see the very first of our special Pride content. We'll have more details on those special guests next week. Finding new ways to celebrate Pride during these unique and difficult times is undoubtedly a challenge, but it is one that we can undertake with passion, creativity, and an open heart. This year, whether you are celebrating with friends or by yourself, we hope that you'll consider us part of your year-round Pride family. Together, we are Pride. Hi. I'm Jay from the LGBTQ romance review blog, Joyfully Jay. At Joyfully Jay, we review tons of LGBTQ romance, as well as romantic fiction and nonfiction. We review ebooks, audiobooks, and even the occasional movie. 
We typically review about 18 books a week, so Joyfully J is a great place to hear about new releases, catch up on books you may have missed, and find some new favorites. In addition to our reviews, each weekday we host an author as our first post of the day. This gives readers a chance to learn more about new releases, get exclusive excerpts, find out about the author, and participate in great giveaways. Each author post on Joyfully J is exclusive, so you get access to book and author information you can't find other places. At Joyfully J, we love LGBTQ romance and are excited to share it with you. Stop by the blog at joyfullyj.com. You can also visit us on our Facebook group, The Joyful Jays. We'd love to have you join us. So diving into books for this week, I am happy to announce that I have righted one of the wrongs in my reading and finally got into a book by E. Davies. I have to say that I really loved meeting the citizens of Hearts Bay in the book Hard Heart, which is the first book in that series. And it's easy to see why this book recently won a silver medal in the 2020 Independent Publishers Book Awards, because it is so, so wonderful. This book ticked so many boxes for me. It's a wonderful small town romance, and that is such my jam. I do love a romance set in a cute small town. <sighs> I love them too. Right? Because <laughs> they're so good. There was also this kind of fling to lovers moment, which was kind of reminiscent of some other tropes that I've been reading a lot lately as well. And I'll talk about that in a minute. And there's also a great opposites attract in here. And man, this whole romance just burns so, so hot. Now, Jesse Stone and his friends are new to Heart Bay. Jesse's convinced them to come here from Portland because Jesse's trying to get over a super bad breakup. And his friends all want to open up an art studio and gallery space to help bring in some tourists and kind of help revive this rather depressed town. And why is the town depressed, you might ask? Well, there's a big schism in the Hart family that split them some years ago. And this problem has left most of the buildings of the downtown area unoccupied. And it's, it's sort of just as a way to let the town die. That's how some of this family wants to deal with the problem. But all this space is also a great chance for Jesse and his friends because if they can get a lease and start their business, they can really make something here. But man, are there some complications ahead. Now, Finn Hart is on the side of the Hart family who is trying to keep the family's reputation pretty good and really kind of trying to lead the way forward, but also not stir the pot either. He's in this uncomfortable position of hooking up with Jesse only to discover mere minutes later that Jesse and his friends are now his new neighbors. And this is very much like that, you know, the trope where you've hooked up with the boss and then you come to your new job and then find out, well, the person you did hook up with. So now you've hooked up with your new neighbor. <laughs> the, the way that Ed wrote that was hilarious in the way that they figured out that they were suddenly neighbors after that hookup. It just was like, oh my goodness, that's awesome. Now, of course, you know, it's too late after they've hooked up, too, because that hookup already started to make the feels for both of them. But they've kind of each got baggage, too. Now, Finn's worried that he's going to be bad for Jesse because if Jesse's landlord finds out he's seeing Finn, the elder heart is probably not going to appreciate that. And that kind of goes for the building lease as well that they're looking to get. And Jesse's still reeling from this backup, too, and he doesn't want Finn to just be a rebound. And he's really not sure that he deserves someone like Finn either. It always makes me a little sad to find people who, who don't think they deserve the other person because that's just like, oh, dude, don't feel that way. There's such an amazing job here with these characters. Ed just 
everything about them gelled so well for me. Finn so badly wants his family to get their shit together and really stop holding the town hostage. And he loves Jesse so much that he also doesn't want him tangled up in all this family crap either. He is so sweet and gentle with Jesse and would totally do anything for him. Jesse, on the other hand, has to balance between his friends and the worries that they're going to think he's making a mistake and that he's perhaps not paying attention enough to their new business. And he doesn't want to hurt Finn either. Everything just keeps moving forward so well as Finn and Jesse learn more about each other, have some amazing dates, and frankly have some sizzling hot sex too. Oof. Ed writes really good sex. Let me just say that straight out. And it really gets hotter every single time. I mean, the initial hookup was hot, but man, it just kept escalating all the way through the cementing of their happily ever after. Now, the drama in this town runs super high, as you might imagine, with this family problem going on. Once it's discovered that Finn and Jesse are dating and that Jesse and his friends would dare to try to rejuvenate the town... There are several attempts at sabotage. Jesse takes all this very personally because he's got a lot of bullying in his past. And it's hard for him to shake that off as he kind of views everything that's happening with this sabotage as bullying against him. And with the family stuff, too, it actually casts doubt on Finn because Jesse's got to wonder if Finn was part of this whole sabotage thing all along. The whodunit in all this kind of creeps in very slow and it unfurls in such a way that leaves a lot of question for the reader as it kind of unfolds on who's actually causing all the problems. And I really loved how it was revealed in the long run. Who the jerk is here? Let's just call it what it is. (laughs) I really loved how it all played out and even how it caused Finn and Jesse to have a little bit of doubt for each other. The town of Hearts Bay itself and the characters that Ed introduced was so good. Small town series really soar when they've got great townsfolk, and Hearts Bay has them. While there are members of the Hart family out to cause trouble, there are far more wonderful people, including some in the Hart clan, who are so good. And I, I really want to dive into some of the other books in this series to get to know more in this family as well. I suspect I'm going to be coming back here a lot, just like I always make very happy return trips to Hobie, Texas. The audio here is so good also. Kudos to Greg Boudot. He does a perfect performance, hitting all the right notes for Finn and Jesse, especially in their vulnerable moments. As another award for this book, Greg's actually a finalist in the LGBTQ category in the 2020 Independent Audiobook Awards for his work here, and I totally get why. So go pick yourselves up a book that's been laden with some acclaim uh, in the award space, because this is so good. I completely recommend Hard Heart by E. Davies. It was a perfect dose of small town sweetness. Well, that small town romance sounds absolutely delightful. And as it so happens this past week, I also happened to read a trope heavy romance called There Galapagos My Heart by Philip William Stover. Now, if you just groaned or rolled your eyes at that title, you and I cannot be friends. (laughs) Well, there you go. (laughs) Romance puns are funny, and I think this is the perfect title for a really delightful story. It's about a guy named Michael, and as a favor to his Aunt Penny, he agrees to teach painting to the guests on her high-end cruise to the Galapagos Islands. He figures what could be the harm in a quick vacation before he moves into his new position as a senior account manager at his PR firm. So off he flies to Ecuador, and before they set sail, Penny has the visiting faculty introduce themselves to the tourists. Their resident wildlife expert is going to be Benton. 
Michael's insufferably handsome, charming British ex-boyfriend. He does everything he can to avoid Benton, but as they tour the capital and take photos where the northern and southern equators meet, they can no longer postpone the inevitable and they end up talking, and it doesn't go well. Michael, it seems, just cannot seem to catch a break because Penny tells them that the two of them will be rooming together during the duration of the cruise. Our two heroes decide to call a truce, and after the ship sets sail, Benton gives his first lecture about the various species that call the Galapagos home. Now, in lesser hands, the presentation would have been like total snoozeville, deadly dull. But the passengers are enthralled by him, and Michael realizes that he may not be as overbidden as he once thought. And that night, as they get ready for bed, Michael definitely realizes that he is so not over him. After a little schedule manipulation from Aunt Penny, Michael is going to join Benton on an early morning onshore excursion to plan the upcoming nature walk for the tourists. Their time amongst the wildlife is magical, but things quickly take a sour turn when Benton suggests that Michael do a solo show of all the pieces he is sure to paint with the Galapagos as his inspiration. Now, he thinks he's being supportive of Michael's talent, but Michael only feels the pressure to pursue something that he's given up, something he feels he's failed at. Back on the boat, there is a telegram waiting for Benton. Michael reads the awkwardly phrased congratulations. It seems that Benton is now a father. Curiouser and curiouser. (laughs) So despite the frustrations with his ex, Michael couldn't help dreaming up some romantic second chance scenarios with Benton. But now that he has a child and obviously has someone special waiting for him back in England, he realized that it was never meant to be. And things are decidedly frosty between our two heroes before Penny forces them to play nice for the remainder of the trip. At a dinner, they reminisce about the old days, and Benton opens up about his emotionally distant family and why he cares about animals so much, forcing Michael to realize that he never really appreciated what a good thing that he had with Benton the first time around. The next morning, Michael teaches his watercolor class, and the passengers all seem to enjoy it. Benton as well. In fact, watching him teach so passionately about something he obviously loved has Benton feeling amorous. Once he returns from his onshore nature excursion, they'll meet back in their stateroom where Benton is going to show Michael just how romantic he really feels. Michael uses the downtime to catch up on some work and becomes so wrapped up in accounts and spreadsheets that he forgets his scheduled rendezvous with his gorgeous ex. Penny decides that it's time for a heart-to-heart and explains that being chained to something because it represents, at least in Michael's mind, security, it might actually be keeping him from becoming his true self. After teaching his final watercolor class, Michael goes ashore and finds an art gallery, and after talking to the man who art he admires, he realizes that security ain't all it's cracked up to be, and that it might be time to spread his wings and fly, just like the exotic birds that Benton loves to talk about so much. He chucks his job back home, which he never really liked in the first place, and after a brief health scare, Benton and Michael decide to give everything they've got to this brand new second chance that they're not going to waste this time. Incidentally, it's during this romantic epilogue that we learn that Benton is actually the father, in air quotes, of a baby wombat. He was part of the team that was watching over the mother at the zoo that he worked out in England. That's so cute. So everything works out for our heroes, and I really, really enjoyed this super sweet, super tropey, tropical romance. It was like the perfect vacation that I didn't know I needed. 
which is just one of the things that I enjoyed about this particular story. One other thing I want to quickly mention is I think the character of Michael in another author's hands could have come off as very off-putting because he spends an awful lot of the story pushing people away or shoring up the walls that he's built around his life because Benton and Penny are constantly pushing him to explore his art more and he's constantly saying no until he finally has this aha moment at the end of the story. But the way that the author uses Michael's introspection, and especially his humor, makes him very likable and very relatable. You understand why he does and thinks the way that he does. Overall, I just really liked the story about Michael and Benton fighting their way back from something that didn't work before and most definitely works now. So obviously, (laughs) if you haven't guessed yet, really enjoyed their Galapagos, my heart. And I highly recommend, if you haven't already, give author Philip William Stover a try. Philip is actually going to be on the show in two weeks, in episode 243 on June 1st. His next book, The Hideaway Inn, is one of the debut novels in Karina Press's new Adores line. And we'll be talking to him about that book. We also talk about this book a little bit. And I will say that if you have not already pre-ordered The Hideaway Inn, you should do that because I've read that book that I'll be reviewing in that show. And it's oh so good. Everybody just needs to pick that up. It is a great summertime read. I'll (laughs) tease my review with that right now. So if you are interested in learning more about the books or anything else we talked about in this week's show, All you have to do is go to the show notes page for episode 241 at BigGayFictionPodcast.com. Want to hang out with us between shows? Check us out on Facebook. You never know what we might post. News about book sales, bonus video content, and maybe even a live broadcast or two. Like us today at Facebook.com slash BigGayFictionPodcast and see what we get up to next. So back in episode 237, I reviewed Victoria Lee's The Fever King and really got into that dystopian novel, despite the fact that it had a virus at the center of it. Um, I still really enjoyed the read, and I was so happy to sit down with Victoria and talk about the Fever Wake series and learn more about the origin to that story, as well as what's coming up next for her, because she's got another book coming out in 2021 that I think everyone is going to really want to check out also. So let's get to that interview. Victoria, welcome to the podcast. I am so excited to have you here. I'm so excited to be here. I've been looking forward to it. It was just a few weeks ago that I reviewed Fever King on the show. And as I was preparing to talk to you, I was reading the FAQs on your site. And I came across this one question that asked if there were queer characters in the Fever Wake series. You replied, literally every character in the Fever King is queer. All of them fight me. I adore that answer so much. (laughs) I stand by that. <laughs> did that FAQ come before the book actually came out? You were just putting it out there? Or did you actually get that question from somebody? I got that question actually from a critique partner when I was developing The Fever King. Like I had a friend who would read the book like as I was writing it and also you know, would read it after I was done. And at one point she was like, it seems like a lot of people in this book are gay. Don't you think that that's like going to be unrealistic or that like you'll have trouble getting it published because like so many people are gay and my response was not only are a lot of people gay but they're all gay and fuck it I'm still gonna get it published (laughs) and you (laughs) did congratulations (laughs) (laughs) so tell our listeners about the fever wake series okay so the first book the fever king 
follows this kid named Gnome. It's set in a kind of speculative, futuristic North Carolina where magic is a virus that infects a lot of people and most people die. But if you do survive, you then can use magic and like develop magic powers. And so the story follows Gnome who survives the virus and gets the magical ability to control technology with his mind, technopathy. And he's always been like an activist against the government, which he thinks is very xenophobic and like semi-fascist. But now he has to join a government military training program to master his magic. And he draws the attention of a guy named Lehrer, who's the minister of defense, who's like a legendary war hero, revolutionary, most powerful magic user in the world. And he's hoping to like you to learn from Lehrer and learn how to use his magic, but then secretly bring down the government from the inside. But then the series as a whole, like it follows that storyline, but it's also really about understanding like trauma and the intersection of interpersonal trauma and personal trauma and like what it means to survive trauma and to like have an identity that both like incorporates the trauma that you've survived, but also kind of is bigger than that. Mm-hmm. Which I imagine some of that you get into in the electric air that came out back in March. Unfortunately, I haven't read this one yet. What can you add on about where Electric Air picks up from Fever King? Um, I'm going to try and do this as non-spoilery as possible so the people who've read the first book know what I'm saying. People who haven't, don't. What we learn happened to Dara in book one happens to Gnome with the same person, but essentially like Gnome experiences a new kind of trauma and he simultaneously is trying to justify it to himself but also like kind of knows that what's happening is wrong or is you know dangerous and it's like another layer of the the political coup and like the anti-government rebellion in that Nome was able to to overthrow the corrupt government from the first book but he's installed a government that turns out to be way more corrupt and so now he has to like figure out his own complicitness in that, but also like how to fight back against that and how to fight back against that when he's very terrified of the person who's the villain in the second book. As you said, the first part about Gnome undergoing what Dara went through, if we'd been on camera, you'd have seen my mouth open and my eyes bug <laughs> bulge out because I know yeah. exactly what that means. <laughs> It's like, oh, my God. Like, chapter three, you find that out. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. What was your inspiration behind this series? Oh, man. So, a couple of different things. I don't feel like it's spoilery to say that even the first book deals a lot with, like, themes about abuse and, like, trauma, as I'd said. Mm -hmm. And I'm, like, a childhood abuse survivor, and I wanted to write about that, but I wanted to write about it not only from the perspective of, like, people who've already survived and who are, you know, past it and recovering and have their whole life ahead of them, but people who are still surviving, people who are still being victimized, because I feel like that's a very particular place to be in. And there's a character in the Fever King who's in that place. And I don't want to say that Fever King is the first book to do this, because that's definitely not true. And in fact, I just read another book that does this really well called My Dark Vanessa. But I do feel like it's... It's a really complicated position to be in because it's a position where you almost don't want to admit that what's happening is what's happening because to admit that 
what's happening to you is wrong would be to admit that you're powerless over it. And for a lot of people, that's something that's really difficult to face. And also people do often a lot of really inadvisable coping mechanisms to handle that kind of trauma while it's still happening. So I wanted to explore that, but I also wanted to explore like on this theme about government corruption and immigration and the oppression of marginalized groups. I'm Jewish and I wanted to write about the way that history repeats itself. So in The Fever King, there's a character whose grandparents survived the Holocaust and then he himself survived a massacre of magic users. And then now in the present day of the story, there's this sort of institutionalized, not like overt massacre, but like slow oppression and massacre of immigrants. And then the main character is, you know, the child of immigrants. And so I wanted to show how like the same kinds of oppression are a constant across history and we don't seem to be able to learn from them. And that having survived one kind of oppression doesn't exonerate you from being able to inflict that as well on other people. And like the way that abuse and trauma can be cyclical and kind of how we all get to choose whether or not we take that trauma and we take that history and perpetuate it or turn it against ourselves and harm ourselves or use it to motivate activism. So I wanted to write about that, I guess. Mm -hmm. How did you decide how to build your world? Because so much of it could be right now <laughs> in so yep. many ways. And yet you are in the future and you've got this virus that gives people magic. So you had to have a magic system in there too. And you had to set up a government and everything. You built a lot. And I have to give you kudos for not you know, weighing the story down in a ton of world building. Well, the upside to YA is you don't really have like the word count to do too much world building or like the attention span from the reader. So you have to kind of condense it as much as you can. But yeah, a lot of people do the world building first and then develop the characters or develop the plot based off the world. I'm kind of the opposite in that I come up with the characters first and then the plot, and then I figure out what kind of world would have produced those characters and what kind of world would put pressure on those characters' weaknesses or you know, restrict them from being able to use their strengths. And so this world just kind of seemed like it would best challenge Gnome and Dara and put them in like the most interesting kinds of positions, characters like that with fatal flaws like they have. But also I did kind of want to set something in North Carolina because I'm from Durham, North Carolina, and... It's a very interesting city. It used to be like the home of some of like the biggest tobacco manufacturing companies in the country. And so there are all these like old decrepit tobacco warehouses now there that are no longer in use that have been either completely abandoned or repurposed for other things. When I was growing up, they were all just abandoned. It was like, like no one wanted to go to Durham. People would like go around the long way around Durham just to not drive through it because they thought they would get shot if they like drove through Durham. Wow. Yeah. And now it's been like revitalized or gentrified, whichever term you prefer. And, you know, it has like a big food scene, big art scene. It always has had an art scene, actually. But like, it's become a much bigger part of the culture there. But like that history is still very vibrant. And you can still like taste that history in the air when you're there. And so it's such a magical city for me. Growing up there with like being told what a terrible place it was to live or how decrepit it was. Like, I saw the magic in it, but when I read books, the magical places were always like, oh, like, 
these meadows in Wales or this castle in Scotland. And I was like, well, why can't there be magic in Durham, North Carolina? So I wanted to make Durham the place that you would be if you had magic as opposed to like one of the typical places. And, and you said it there so well. And obviously, I mean, Gnome fights with everything he's got for the place too. It's interesting because Durham, like as it got you know, gentrified, a lot of people moved down south from like New York or Pennsylvania, Massachusetts, wherever, because like they heard about like the new food scene and so on, or like the new stimulus packages that they had for startups. And a lot of us who had grown up there or had lived there all along, you know, felt like, yes, Durham is great now, but it's always been great and it's always had this magic to it. And so I do think like there's this, there's a lot of people now who love Durham, but like among those of us who grew up there, there's this feeling of like, well, we've always loved Durham and we, we would always have fought for Durham. And so, yeah, I think that that's kind of how Gnome feels as well. Mm -hmm. And along with the world, to kind of go back to how we opened, really everybody's queer here one way or the other. And given that you start with character, I guess that's just how your characters built themselves out. Yeah. Well, so for me, I'm, I'm queer, I'm trans and bisexual. And when I was in high school, everyone that I knew was queer, like all of my friends were queer. I went to an art school, which was part of it. But I also feel like we kind of travel in packs, like we attract each other. And so for me, it's just not realistic for there to be like one or two queer characters and then a whole bunch of cisgender straight people, because that was never my experience. So not only did I feel like oh, well, if there's one of us, there's a ton of us. But I figured in the future, like in 2123 or whenever Fever King takes place, people are probably a lot more open about their identities. Where I wrote the book so that there's not any homophobia and there's not any transphobia and people are just kind of whatever they are and everyone's chill with it. Um, like Lair's the leader of the country and he's openly gay and no one cares. Mm -hmm. And so I figured probably a lot more people would be out and probably a lot more people would identify with some kind of queer identity if there was absolutely no social pressure to stay in the closet. And it's just one of the things that makes it such a refreshing read is that that aspect just isn't there. There's a lot of stuff going on in this world, but that's not one of them, the homophobia. Right. Like if you can create a fantasy world, you can put whatever you want in it. You don't have to put homophobia. Exactly. Not yeah. to. Yeah. So I loved Gnome so, so much. I mean, he's he's 16, but yet, you know, he puts on this armor often of like, I'm an adult and I'm going to take on this and I'm going to fix the world and it's going to be great. And then other times he is a teenager who's smitten with a boy and scared about what's to come and missing his parents and his parental types and such. How did you find the right balance for him? I think he just reminded me of myself as a teen, but also of a lot of people I knew as a teenager who were so passionate about activism or about changing the world or about a cause. But, you know, they're still kids. They're still teens. They still have, like, all of these small, not, well, I mean, they're not small to them, right? But small compared to, say, genocide, like, smaller tragedies or fears or dramas and how those can feel equally as important sometimes, too. So I don't know. I, I think it comes back to like that whole intersection of intergenerational and personal trauma, right? There's like the intergenerational trauma of his parents being immigrants and everything that's happening with 
the anti-immigrant sentiment in Carolinia. That's his intergenerational trauma. But then there's also like the personal trauma that he's experiencing with the death of his parents or with like being manipulated by older adults. And I think that even though one of these only affects one person, it only affects Nome, like, and the other one is like this huge legacy kind of tumbling down over generations to Nome, they're equally as impactful and they cause as much harm and they inspire as much passion. And so I don't know. I just really wanted to kind of play around with writing something like that. And Noam seemed like the perfect character to really start to disentangle the difference and similarities between these like bigger traumas or these bigger tragedies and the smaller ones that feel just as intense. Mm -hmm. Now, as Electric Air came out in the middle of March, and even as this airs in the middle of May, the world's reeling from COVID-19. Yeah. <laughs> and of course, you know, Fever King came out in 2018 before this was even an inkling for anybody. What's it like for you to talk about a new book that has a deadly virus in it in the middle of all this? Oh, it's pretty weird. I've got to say, I like wrote an essay about this on, I like made a new type of newsletter called a Substack, And on there, like my first entry was what it's like trying to promote a book in the middle of a pandemic. And, you know, the thing that makes it a little bit worse, obviously, being that my book's about a pandemic. Because I think that, like, you feel like you have to tread this line between promoting your book, which you should do and are required to do and shouldn't feel any shame in doing, despite the fact that the world's exploding, but also, like, do it in a way that doesn't seem as if you're trying to leverage the pandemic for personal gain, which I've definitely seen people do things that kind of evoke that and you know it's not it's not a good look so yeah I think that there's like a a little bit of a guilt to it where you're like well why am I trying to promote this book that's about something that might be especially triggering for people right now um when there's so much going on in the world but also I do know that people want to be able to read and want to be able to escape and want to be able to enjoy things and I love this book and put a lot of effort into it so I should be proud of it and I should be proud of you know, what I've accomplished or what I'm putting out into the world. So yeah, it's definitely a very weird position to be in. And I think that, especially given like the immigration themes as well in the series, which I wrote this before the 2016 election. So on one hand, you can start to feel prophetic. On the other hand, it's also like, well, that's the whole point of these books too, right? Like history repeats itself. So Mm -hmm. sure, maybe we should have predicted this kind of immigration crisis. We should have predicted another pandemic like the Spanish flu because these things keep happening as long as we don't do anything differently. And I admit, I felt a little of the weirdness because I reviewed Fever King towards the end of April on the show. And I'm like, well, you may be wondering why I chose to read this book right now because <laughs> I was reading it as it all kind of broke too. But the book really isn't about the pandemic itself. I mean, mm-hmm. there's still outbreaks, but it's more about what's happened since the big outbreak. So much of it's just not about that. And the comparisons I make to the book, there's a little Harry Potter in it in some ways. There's a little Hunger Games in it, you know, to really tie it to books that people know well. It was an interesting kind of escape in in the, the late part of March <laughs> to read this book, which was different than what was going on outside and not even set in a contemporary realm either. Well, I'm glad that makes me feel better. So. <laughs> You've also got a webtoon of Fever King, which is just amazing. It's such a, it's some beautiful artwork there. 
what was it like for you to see your book translated into a completely other medium? It was incredible. Like, I mean, so I came from fandom originally where I would write fan fiction, you know, other people would do fan art. And so I was very familiar with the idea of fan art. And so for me, before I ever published a book, like my number one dream, like the, I used to say like, I'll know I've made it if anyone makes fan art of my book. And now someone's not only like, it's not really fan art, but it's like art of the book. Not only have they done like one little piece, it's like the whole book is now in art. I can see like how someone visualizes every scene in the book. And that's just amazing because for one, like Sarah is incredibly talented. And so I love seeing like her depiction of the story and her take on it. But also like, I've always felt as if writing is a weird kind of telepathy where you have this story in your head and these feelings and you're trying to share them with somebody else through prose. And when you get to see kind of like, all right, well, I put all of this into writing and you read it and you tried to visualize the same story. You tried to feel the same emotions and this is what you saw. This is what you felt. And like, you can really see like how somebody interpreted the written words And so that's also super cool. Like every time that she does a scene and I'm like, oh, that's exactly how I pictured it. That's exactly how I imagined it. Or like, that's not what I was thinking, but that's equally valid. And it's super cool to see that somebody else took this from that scene. So it's, yeah, it's really awesome. I think that it's one of my favorite things that's kind of come out of this book getting published is getting to see the webtoon. And you've got some really nice fan art on your website too that has come from the book oh yeah there's a ton more now i need to actually update the website because like i get tagged in fan art like maybe once a day now on instagram oh that's awesome yeah there's a lot of it and it's all amazing somebody actually drew me with the characters from the fever king the like username on instagram was t-i-n-e-e art and yeah that was like pretty much goals for me i feel like i've peaked now it's only downhill from here (laughs) going back to the webtoon how did that come about did the artist just reach out and say hey i'd like to do this or hey i've done this actually uh webtoon reached out to me and they wanted to license the book for for like web serial and then they auditioned different artists and found one that they liked and yeah Do you have a say in how it turns out in those cases or what they use from the book? It's a pretty faithful adaptation. They send me like scripts of episodes ahead of time as well as like sketches. So I kind of see like, all right, so let's say this week or this coming week, I will probably get a package with the finalized art for next week's episode, the sketch for the episode after that, and then like or the next two episodes and then like the scripts for those next two episodes. So I could kind of like see what they're planning on putting in there. And for the most part, like I don't change anything unless there's something that I feel is like incorrect or is going to like mess up the interpretation of something really important in the book or like not set up book two well in case they end up licensing that. But I don't know. I think that generally they do like such a great job. There's nothing for me to say except for, Oh, this looks amazing. That's awesome. Hopefully we'll see more things like this for these kind of books. I mean, I don't think it would necessarily play for a contemporary well necessarily, but for these kinds of young adult, you know, alternate future sort of books, it could be really interesting. Oh, yeah, for sure. I know a couple other books have had webtoons now, too. 
there's The Weight of Our Sky by Hannah Alkoff has a webtoon and Not Even Bones by Rebecca Schaefer and then also The Wrath and the Dawn by Renee Adia. So yeah, it's becoming a thing and I'm pretty excited by it. That's awesome. I'll check those out too. Is there more in Fever Wake to come? Nope, this is it. So I did like release two novellas as pre-order gifts for people who pre-order The Electric Air, but those are just like little 30,000 word stories. But I feel as if, you know, I told the story I wanted to tell. I have an idea of what I would do if I ever did decide to go back to the universe. But for now, I'm focusing on other things. Speaking of other things, I've read the blurb for what's coming in 2021 with Lesson in Vengeance. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about that. So a Lesson in Vengeance is my take on a lesbian secret history. So... It's a dark academia thriller. It's about this girl who returns to boarding school after her girlfriend died the previous year. She's, you know, been grieving. She's been in a mental hospital and is, you know, finally, you know, coming back to school, coming back to her regular life. And she meets this other girl who's a new transfer to the school named Ellis, who's a literary prodigy who, you know, has written these amazing books and is, you know, quite famous and has this kind of cult of personality around her at the school and her and the main character become friends and get involved in trying to untangle this history at the school of these witches who had died like hundreds of years ago that the main character believes are like still haunting the school. And they start like trying to reenact the murders of those witches to try and understand like the truth of what really happened but also to try and like help the main character understand that that magic isn't real because she has kind of convinced herself that those witches cursed her and that's why her girlfriend died. So yeah, I don't know how much, how to describe it in a way that's not spoilery. I guess it's like secret history meets the craft a little bit, but like okay, also okay. with some thriller elements in there. Uh-huh. Yeah, because there's definitely that mystery thriller vibe of trying to figure out how the witches died and everything. It's very different from Fever Wake. So were you looking to just totally pivot the vibe of the book? Or is this just where your characters took you next? Or So I love The Secret History. It's probably my favorite book. But I was writing something else before this. I was writing an adult fantasy. And I had sent it to my agents, and they were reading it. And you know, they had gotten back to me with revisions for that book. And then while we were on the phone talking about the revisions, I was like, oh, yeah, and, like, I have this idea for this other book. And I told them my very basic pitch for that. I was like, oh, you know, like a sapphic secret history and, like, this would happen. And they were like, okay, stop everything. Like, forget the other book for now. Write this book right now. Just <laughs> right now. Write that book. Which was good because I was feeling very excited about that book at the time, more excited than I was about going back and revising the other one. So, yeah, I wrote that book. And it sold at auction and is being published. So I guess that worked out for me. Yeah, I think it did. <laughs> How did you get started writing? You mentioned some, some fan fiction in your past. What's your writing origin story? So my parents tell this story about how when I was in kindergarten and you know we were given this assignment to write down whatever the teacher was saying and you know just to practice like being able to write. So I was doing that and they left the room and they kept talking and I could only hear so much of it. And, you know, I took, I continued to take things extremely literally. So I kept writing down their conversation. And then whenever I couldn't hear what they were saying, I would make it up. 
and it became its own whole story, which was probably the first sign that I was going to be a writer. The second sign being when I wrote a novel when I was like eight called Patsy that was about a girl named Patsy, spoiler, on the Oregon Trail. It was like a, almost like a fictionalization of the Oregon Trail computer game, which I was obsessed with at the time. And it was terrible. I'm sure it was very bad. It was only like 30,000 words long or something, but I wrote that and I never looked back. I just kept writing novels. And then when I was in like high school and college and a little bit in middle school too, I got into fan fiction and I would like write fan fiction, but also original stuff at the same time and kind of uh, go back and forth between what kind of project I was working on. And I didn't decide to try and get anything published really until I was in grad school. Um, I just played around and wrote what made me happy. And Feverwake was your first, right? Yes. That's awesome. Well, not first novel ever, but first novel published. It was my 23rd novel ever. Is fantasy and kind of this alternate history and maybe a little paranormal where you see yourself dabbling forever? Or do you see contemporaries in your future? Or what do you think that looks like? I definitely could see myself writing contemporaries. I have an idea for a contemporary that I want to write that doesn't have any magic in it at all. And I've written a little bit of it, like maybe a chapter, and then put it aside to work on some other projects that, like this one, and then I have the two adult fantasies that I've been playing with. But yeah, so I, I definitely could see myself writing contemporaries. I'm also like co-writing a contemporary tragic romance with a friend that's like a adult upmarket, no magic. But I don't think that those would come out for a really long time because they're nowhere near being done. Mm -hmm. Are you enjoying the co-writing experience? Yes. I have to admit that I haven't done my part yet. My friend has written her part. I've done a lot of plotting of it and like helping her with hers, but I haven't actually started writing because I've had too many deadlines for other books. But I've enjoyed it theoretically. <laughs> that's good. <laughs> At least the plotting went well, I assume. Yeah. So that's a, that's a good sign. Yes, for sure. Is there anything after Lesson in Vengeance that you can kind of tease us with what might be coming up in later 2021 or into even 2022? I know there will be a 2022 book also with Delacorte because Lesson in Vengeance sold in what's called a two-book deal, meaning that they bought an unspecified future book from me. I don't know what that will be yet because we haven't decided, but based off the ideas that we've thrown around, I have a feeling that it will be another like kind of thriller with a little bit of speculative magic elements to it, kind of like Lesson in Vengeance, where it's not a full fantasy, but it has a little bit of magic. Mm -hmm. And then I have a book right now that is, I don't know how much I can say, you're not supposed to talk about this because it's like Fight Club. It's like, don't talk about <laughs> Fight Club, but I'm going to talk about it. I'm on submission with adult fantasy book, which means that the book is out with publishers and they have to decide if they want to buy it. But since no one has bought it yet, I don't feel like I can say what it's about. Sure. But... Hopefully it sells. If it does sell, then just keep your eyes peeled because it will be announced. But like now that I've said it, of course it won't. <laughs> Hopefully we didn't just jinx the whole thing right here. <laughs> <laughs> and how can people keep up with you online to find out, you know, when Lesson in Vengeance comes out and when you might sell this other book and everything else coming? So Lesson in Vengeance will come out broadly summer 2021, so summer next year. I am online on Twitter and Tumblr and Instagram at so said Victoria. And then I also have my website, victorialeewrites.com and my Substack, which is like a website version of a newsletter at victorialee.substack.com. 
Fantastic. Well, Victoria, it's been so awesome talking to you about all things Feverwake and getting to learn more about what you write and what's coming next. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much. It's a great talk. This week's interview transcript is brought to you by our community on Patreon. If you'd like to read the author interview for yourself, you know what to do. Go on over to the show notes page for this episode at BigGayFictionPodcast.com. And thanks again to Victoria for taking some time to talk with us about the Feverwake series. That quote I gave off of her website, I tell you, I just love an author who will just stand by their work and be like, yes, this is all queer and deal with it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I just really love that and look forward to seeing how Victoria pushes that in her future books. Yeah, definitely. Okay, guys, I think that's going to do it for this week's show. Coming up next week in episode 242, author Jesse Leah Ryan will join us. Yeah, I recently read Surreal Estate. I reviewed that a few weeks ago. And after I read it, I just really wanted to have Jesse here to talk all about her books. Yes, looking forward to that. So everyone, remember, no matter where life takes you, the journey will always be sweeter when you have a book. Until next time, everyone, please keep turning those pages and keep reading. Big Gay Fiction Podcast is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. You can find more shows you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts. New episodes of this show are available every Monday wherever you get your podcasts. You can help support this show with a monthly pledge through Patreon. For more information about joining our community and the bonus content we deliver, check out patreon.com slash biggayfictionpodcast. I'm Kurt Graves. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.